This is an ABC podcast. Hello, Minefield listener. Just a quick heads up that the following discussion contains a few adult themes, so please bear that in mind if there are any children listening. Let me just bring you behind the scenes of the minefield. Um, I introduce the show most weeks. Scott does it occasionally. I think it's usually when I haven't gotten here in time or something. Um, which I guess technically makes me the anchor. I think this gets to Scott a bit. I think he perceives a kind of hierarchy he doesn't like. And every now and again, I just get the sense he's ready, ready to lash out. I say this and I'm whispering because we're actually in the same studio today and he's just, he's giving me a look that makes me a little worried about mm, what he might do. And I'm just putting it out there for my safety as much as anything else so that if anything happens, we can all say... <laughs> There's an audio record. We were forewarned. <laughs> we all need to be protected. Like it's the ravages of Scott's jealousy. Willie Dale is my name on the minefield. Scott Stevens is my wonderful co-host. Yeah, Hi, Scott. I see what you did there. Yes. You snuck the topic in. It's not actually true at all. No. Like one of the things I... Uh, I'm astonished by with you, and I think it it goes to the depths of your moral character. Oh, dear Lord. Is I have never known you to be jealous of anyone about anything. Wow. I can't think of a single... Maybe there are Lakers fans out there that you're jealous of or something. That's the only time I've seen a chink in your armour is when it involves the Lakers, given your love for the Boston Celtics. But apart from that, Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think I've seen it. So credit to you. Thank you. And uh, I don't know where to go from here because we're trying to talk about the concept of jealousy. We are. We are. So anybody who's been listening over the course of the year knows that we've been doing stuff on the moral emotions. Do I really (laughs) need to say the whole thing again? Moral emotions not meaning that they are themselves or in and of themselves moral, but there's something about one's interaction with the world and with one's sense of what is proper, what is right, what is mine. It engages your moral faculties. Yes, and the emotions almost always register themselves as having some kind of moral undertone to them. No, you don't need to say that. Jealousy, I don't have to say the whole thing. Jealousy is so weird. Can I tell you one of the things that I've loved most about doing this series over the course of the year is teasing out what makes envy different from resentment, for instance. Mm -hmm. What makes anger different from wrath? In this particular case, what is it that makes jealousy different from envy? And the more I've been thinking about this, I've been wondering, are there any circumstances in which jealousy could be regarded as an appropriate or even a moral emotion? A moral emotion in the sense of being morally justifiable. So can I, can I make a kind of an opening, opening gambit? I don't sure. know if this is going to help at all. I got a feeling you're about to steal my thunder. If if I'm beginning, I'm, I'm jealous of that. <laughs> if I'm beginning to, then just tell me to shut up. Yep. Envy is usually directed towards a particular good, something that one wishes one has. Envy casts a sideward glance at a rival, so someone else who has the thing that I want. Envy, in other words, is usually motivated by non-possession. Mm-hmm. So what I want, someone else has, and the thing that spurs the envy is the idea that I want it. And that I then wish them not to have it. And that I wish them not I to wish have the, it. wish it to be taken from them somehow. I think so. I mean, there are people, of course, who would say that that kind of that harm infliction on the person who does possess it, that's not essential to envy. And that envy doesn't necessarily, envy could actually be, I mean, Rawls certainly thought this. Envy could be diffused by a sufficient degree of redistribution, for instance. Yeah, but that's the same thing. Well, partly. So, so I have more because someone else has less. Mm. That's part of the idea. And that's what you actually that's want. That's part of the idea of redistribution. But then, you see, envy begins getting into the idea of merit. So what makes envy immoral emotions isn't just, I want that and you have it. It's also, I deserve that. At least as much as you. At least as much as you do. Mm -hmm. And so there is a kind of pushing down of the other person. You are not as deserving or even you got this by virtue of your birth. You got this by virtue of some accident of, of whatever. Whereas I really worked for this. I really deserve it. Why don't I have it? So you're right. There is that kind of moral equalization. One of the problems with the whole logic, I mean a perceptual problem, a phenomenological problem with redistribution, not a moral problem with redistribution. 
One of the perceptual problems of redistribution is it basically says everyone is equally deserving or everyone is equally non-deserving just by virtue of the fact that you belong to a political community and the fact that we are all in something together. We all bear one another's burdens and share one another's fate. Therefore, there is a kind of natural, almost mechanistic redistribution that takes place regardless of who you are. The problem with that in the way that we perceive it is what you're saying that my merit, you're saying that how hard I've worked for something You're saying that I get the same thing as someone who's been entirely lazy, someone who's received everything they've ever had by virtue of, you know, someone else's good graces. You're saying that my hard work has counted for nothing. So I think there is something kind of interestingly non-meritorious about redistribution that offends certain moral sensibilities. In effect, you've you've just got to get over that because of there being a higher virtue to redistribution itself. It's only kind of true Hmm. because the other argument is that the redistribution is not always merit-based. So there is hard work. There is the application of talent. There is graft. Mm. But there is also inheritance. Mm. Um, this shows up a lot in class politics, which I do think is frequently... What kind of inheritance are you referring well, to? Well, I, I kind of meant literal inheritance, okay. as in you inherited a small fortune. Okay. Or are a there, large fortune. Are there other inheritances? Moment. But I was thinking of other inheritances to do with, I don't know, class. Yep race, gender, or et cetera. And this is why the notion of privilege is such a, a popular notion to talk about, particularly in progressive politics at the moment, mm. is because there is a sort of undeniable truth to it that, you know, you can win certain lotteries in life by virtue of where you're born that mean that, yes, you worked hard, but your hard work yielded results that someone else's hard work simply could never because of their starting point, yeah. right? So that critique is there, and then it's not that it goes against any notion of work or attributing success to work, but just an acknowledgement of the the very different starting points that people have. Mm. You don't like this? No, I like it very much. I'm just thinking we're not talking about envy or redistribution. Well, no, no, but but it does because what what it then says, that's a different basis for redistribution that doesn't discount hard work. You're right. But might actually in some ways honour the notion of hard work, depending on how it's expressed. Well, I agree completely. And that's why I don't think there's a strong moral case against redistribution. But I think that one of the ways, again, phenomenologically, one of the ways that we experience the logic of redistribution kind of has a degree of that resentment. Do you know why, though? Because it's forced. Yes, I think that's right. So if you imagine an alternative society, which is unrealizable for us now, Mm. but where there are no taxes, but what there is is a, a deeply held moral understanding that those who have owe obligations to those who don't have, such that the redistribution happens in a way that is voluntary but informed or compelled by a certain moral vision. Mm, That's right. Right? Then that's a very different kind of redistribution. That, it seems to me, would be, if you could realise that, I'm not saying you can, but if you could, that would be a redistribution that doesn't have antagonism attached to it. That's right. So I think, for example... And Just by the way, yeah. that is exactly John Rawls's vision. That yeah. is the thesis of the theory of justice. So where I got to that from, just because it's what I'm most familiar with, is within the Islamic tradition. So one of the, the pillars of Islamic practice is this thing called zakat, which is like a compulsory... It's a compulsory giving of 2.5% of your wealth. It's a bit more complicated than that, but let's just say that, to those who are eligible for it by certain criteria. Basically, they need it. Um, And what's interesting about it is the word that's used. So so zakat, tazkiyah, these sorts of words, anytime you see that sort of Z-K-T triliteral root, actually is connoting something to do with purification. Mm. So the notion there is that by giving this money, you are purifying your wealth. It's not that you are paying a tax although you can see it's mechanistically the same thing. It's that unless you do this, your wealth is corrupted. Mm. Your wealth is tainted. Mm. So what that's doing is it's a slightly different moral logic or a slightly different psychology, which is to say that you're actually not entitled to this, Mm. that there is a moral imperative on you as someone who has been given a, um, I don't know, a, a, a more generous allocation of God's bounty say, you're actually obligated then to make sure that that isn't corrupted. Mm. You owe obligations to those who don't have. At the same time, they owe obligations to you. 
which is the obligation of not being envious mm, interesting. and of understanding that wealth distribution in a sort of more cosmic way rather than as a simple, straight, black and white matter of injustice. Mm. That doesn't mean all wealth acquisition is just, et cetera, but, you know, the, the basic logic of it is different. So now I'm not saying that it would be, you know, easy to realise that sort of thinking at a society, like a societal level. I'm just saying that that's a totally different way of thinking about it. Mm. And in that context, I've never heard anyone resent giving zakat. Mm. I hear people resent taxes all the time. Yeah. Yeah, there's lots of, could be a million reasons for that, but it's just a different way of approaching it. And I think what happens with tax, because it's forced, because there's not necessarily a clear moral vision attached to it, or at the very least there is only a contested moral vision attached to it, it has a sense for some people who resent it of being arbitrary or being, by a definition, theft and, mm. and tyranny. And so that introduces the envy side of the and the resentment side of these equations yeah. in a way that I don't think has to be true, but almost certainly will be. Yes. And yeah. I mean, Peter Schlotterdijk, for instance, makes exactly that argument against tax. What we ought to bring back is a form of generous, uh, almost democratic philanthropy mm. and restore the nature of honor and honoring those who give over and beyond. In yep. other words, we allow people, we don't tax people, but we allow them to buy their good standing within otherwise uneven or unequal yeah, which we kind of do through tax deduction. Which we do, which we kind of do. But the thing is, that is unrealizable of course in the is. absence of a moral vision that people have really taken here. That's right. And yeah. this is what I think is so interesting. I was being quite serious in bringing up roles before. I mean, the parallels between the Islamic system that you described and Rawls's vision of, from the outset, something like an original bargain, something like a shared disposition that he calls, you know, the original position, the veil of, you make a certain decision about what would be equal before you have any knowledge whatsoever about your particular situation in society. Mm. But the thing that a lot of people, I think, miss out or leave out in trying to understand what it is that Rawls was doing is they miss the entire fifth portion of the theory of justice, which is all about the cultivation of the moral emotions. That's where he says that you know, even before or beyond, we have this heavily theorized, heavily theoretical edifice of justice. We have certain proper just sentiments, and it's the basic sentiment that we bear one another's burdens, we share one another's fate. It's the basic sentiment that one of the conditions of us living together well is the refusal, the denial of envy, precisely because of the way that envy corrodes the very bonds of the possibilities of our common life. And it's that emotional substructure, it's the cultivation deliberately family level, schools, society, our public discourse. It's the cultivation of those emotions that provide the possibilities for taxation and charitable donation without either resentment or without sort of uh, vainglory or, mm. or grandstanding. But almost no one believes this anymore. Yes, yes, but I think maybe we gave up on it. Can I bring us back to, je to jealousy for yes, a second? Yes, because we haven't got to the topic yet. So, so if we think about envy as being driven by non-possession. You have something, you don't deserve it, or you don't deserve it as much as mm. I do. Jealousy, and this is what I think makes it so all-corrupting. Jealousy is driven by deformed possession. So envy, I don't have something. Jealousy, I have something, which is what makes the rival or the prospect of one's rival loom so large. So can I give a couple of, well, let, let me give one example and let me give one example of why I think jealousy is so weird. So an example of jealousy, I, I could draw on Mozart's The Marriage of Figaro. There's a really fascinating example of the count who doesn't really love a particular woman, but is so incensed by the prospect of his rival that he becomes jealously, even furiously attached to her. There, it's almost like the real erotic connection is with the rival, not with the object mm. of, of possession. But you even think of something like, say, the first season of True Detective. Uh, Marty Hart is your classic jealous person. He is a flanderer. He is a lecher. He is a misogynist. He is massively possessive of both his wife and his mistress. He doesn't treat either of them overly well. 
And yet the prospect that someone else might have designs on them, or they could be interested in somebody else, that they could be doing the same thing that he is doing, for instance, drives him almost maniacally crazy. That is, I think, almost the perfect instantiation of what it is that drives jealousy. This is mine. This is not uh, something that needs to be loved in its autonomy and in its self-determination, but it is mine. And as soon as anybody else trains their sight on that, then the presence of the rival, the prospect of a rival, isn't a violation of this thing that is mine, but it's a violation of me. It is a form of injury to my manhood, to my sense of, of self. So I think there's an example of jealousy there that shows just the extent to which possessiveness drives it. And ego, in other words, looms large at the center of it. No, yeah, I wonder. Okay, go on. So the, the case you make is obviously right in a lot of cases. Mm. But I think very few people would, li- say in a romantic situation yeah. context, I think relatively few people would like their partner to have no jealousy. This is the point. Right. So, Excellent. You know, well, lead. If my wife was being propositioned by someone and I couldn't care less about that. Yeah, that's right. I suspect she would be offended. Yes. Unless she was at a point where she didn't want to be with me anyway. And what would the critique be there? The critique would be, don't I mean anything to you? Is there nothing here that needs to be preserved? Um, Are you protective of... Of nothing, do you see nothing of value? And can I just remind you, Willie, that this is exactly the central dilemma that motivates Jean-Luc Godard's 1963 film Le Mépris, or Contempt. Paul is seemingly oblivious to the fact that Jeremiah Prokosh, this, I mean, Jack Palance, this kind of very, very brash, loud American producer, obviously has designs on his wife. You could say that Paul is secure in their relationship. And is completely at home in the knowledge of the love of his wife, such that the fact that this wealthy producer obviously has designs on his wife means nothing to him. It's it's oblivious. Of course, she's not going to go off with him. But she, Camille, receives Paul's indifference, his lack of jealousy, as a sign that he is not a man in the first place, and maybe doesn't actually love her, or in the worst case, that he is in fact willing to barter her sexual favors in order to get in good with this. Because what he cares about is his own financial benefit. Exactly. So here's the paradox of jealousy. Would you ever acknowledge to somebody, yes, I'm really jealous? I suspect you wouldn't. I would. Really? Depends on what it is. But je- jealousy has a kind of stigma to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the problem is linguistic. I, think, okay. I suspect in other languages they have different words mm-hmm. for different kinds of jealousy. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I'm making that up. But mm-hmm. I assume that would be true. Right. Because I Degrees, think, in other words. No, nature. Okay. So ahead. I can be jealous of you in a base way, mm. right? You get a bigger paycheck than me because our employer thinks you're less dispensable yeah, or more that's, indispensable. That's envy, though. That's envy. No, I may not wish that you lose that paycheck, okay. but I'm jealous of you. And every time I look at you, you remind me of like... That's still envy. No, because... It's still envy. No, I don't think so. Because, because I might even believe that... Because worth, worth and merit is central. No, I don't that. think it's envy though, because I might even believe that our employer's assessment is correct. <laughs> right? <laughs> You know what? You are actually more valuable, and I'm really jealous of that. But. (laughs) And I don't like seeing you because you remind me of that fact, right? That's different. There is also a kind of... Okay, but what is it that's incensing you? Is it the fact of the paycheck, or is it the fact that our employer looks at me differently? It's probably both. Okay. Or or either. I'm not sure it makes a difference to the point I'm making, right? Good, fair. It's not envy because I'm not wishing your paycheck to bounce. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. I'm not hoping that you stuff up so that maybe I am. that It starts to tip into envy at that point. Mm. Or maybe I even procure it. You know, I, I go to the employer and I say, well, geez, did, did you hear what Scott said? Yeah, right, that, now we're in envy. Sure. But uh, absent that, I think we're just in jealousy territory. Mm. Which, and I don't think that's a good jealousy. Mm. But there is another form of jealousy that actually is just an expression of either admiration or of the value of something. Mm. Mm, that's true. Right? That's true. I am jealous of your character. I am 
jealous of your intellect. I'm jealous of your generosity. I see that and I wish I had that. But there, really what I'm doing is admiring it. Mm. I see that you have... Because that is emulation. Well, this may not be because it may be that I can't... I, I have no way of emulating that. But it's... Well, I guess, you know, what is that thing? Imitation is the highest form form of flattery. Maybe that's what you're gesturing towards. But what's really happening there is I'm registering that you have something of value, something to be admired, and I greatly admire it. Mm. And so I'm jealous of you in a good way, Mm. right? In the same way that when I'm jealous of someone trying to um, make advances to my wife. I'm jealous because there's something of great value here mm, mm. that uh, that this needs to be protected, right? That that wonderful is worth being defended. Wonderful. It's not just about ego. Okay. So I think these are. I think that's a different concept of jealousy, and so I think you'd actually need a different word. Yeah which I'm not sure English quite has. No, I think you're right. And I, I think even the way that you parsed it out then is absolutely vital. So let's just think about the dynamic for a second. So jealousy, I think, is the affect where the self or the ego necessarily looms large, where one regards the rival for, say, my wife's affections as the enemy, as a threat to my happiness, to my well-being, by taking away something that is of inestimable value. Now, you could say that part of the nature of jealousy is that it takes that thing which is supposed to be of inestimable value and it makes it an extension of the ego so that by losing that thing of great value, what I'm actually doing is losing a chunk out of my... Yeah, what matters is not the thing, what matters is me. That's right, that's right. And so there I think that is jealousy proper. That's jealousy one. Okay. The very fact that a rival wants what I have both makes the thing that I have more important to me because I have it and not my rival. But you see, then there's that other form of attachment. And and let's try to parse out these forms of attachment because I I think it's, it's attachment to something that is of great value to us, of tremendous preciousness that's at the issue. There's another form of attachment that performs what Iris Murdoch called a radical unselfing. So the fact that this is in my life, it's not that it becomes an extension of my ego, but it causes my ego to eclipse somewhat. And there is a form of deep devotion, of radical attachment to a singular person as this person and no other that is that can be consuming but not a species or not a subset of the ego. The very fact of that attachment, the depth of that love, and the desire that I hold a special place in the eyes of that person, that I achieve a degree of recognition, that I think can be an expression of profound value, of great preciousness. And the ego isn't the thing that looms large. And so the fact of someone else... Now, the question is, if I am sure of my place in the affections, in the eyes of this thing that I hold of, this person that I hold in great value, does that then temper the way that I view a potential rival? Or is the arrival... Because I'm not threatened by it. Yeah. Or is the arrival of of a rival, is the arrival of a rival on the scene, does that tempt, does that awaken my underlying fears that I'm just not good enough for this person? Or or the value that I attach to it. Or the value that I attach to it. So someone approaches my wife, I know... I'm a more attractive proposition than this person. Sure. I'm still jealous. Really? It could be. And that would be evidence that what you're concerned about isn't you. Yeah. What you're concerned about is the integrity of the thing. Yeah. Can I ask you one last thing, though? Sure. Okay. I don't know who this person that I'm better than is, by the way. Yeah, I know. I know. I'm wondering. (laughs) These are purely hypothetical scenarios. Okay. So this is no hypothetical. Yep. Bearing my soul here. Oh, wow. I know. I don't know what my wife was thinking when she said yes, when I asked her to. I have the same thought. Not about your wife. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I have no doubt that I married way out of my league Mm -hmm. and that she 
married way beneath herself. I don't understand her love. Part of me wants to think that it's part of the nature of love that one cannot but hold the object of that love in a position of higher admiration, as always above oneself. If a rival, perceived, possible, might not, maybe not objective, but a perceived rival comes on the scene, and because I am filled with a sense, not of any compromise in my wife's love, but of my inferiority, that still is, even in a perverse way, the ego looming large, isn't it? In other words, even at that point, I'm not so secure in the love of my wife. I am still preoccupied by the apparent deficiencies in myself. And that then becomes the thing that could taint or could cause there be, to be an inflammation upon the arrival of a rival. That still is a form of egotism, isn't it? I'm not sure. So it's not just possession. Mm. It's also the overpresence of the ego. I don't know. No? Because it could just be, this is something I really value. I now fear that it's under threat. My deficiencies are part of the reason for it, but I nonetheless value it, Hmm. and I think it's worth fighting for. Is that ego? Here, I think, is is the difference. Here's the tipping point. It's quite common in the Hebrew Bible, for instance, for the divine figure, call him God, to refer to a chosen people as a precious possession and to declare himself incredibly jealous whenever that people, say, worships a foreign god. Mm. And it's very common in the Hebrew Bible for that form of jealousy to be characterized by or to be followed by an intense anger, Mm -hmm. even punishment. So there is that longing to hold a particular place of affection in the eyes of something, someone that one loves. The point at which that then tips over into angry possessiveness, almost if I can't have you, nobody will, Mm. or that anger then becomes the predominant affect or the predominant expression, and that possession is even a language that's appropriate then to that particular connection. That, I think, is where jealousy, again, I'm not sure in the example I've just given if ego really is the right word to use, but I do think that's where jealousy becomes really, really troubling. I think that's right. I don't know what to do with your Hebrew Bible example because yeah, I think neither. once you get into the divine, you, it's a totally different register of things. There is, of course, a question with the rabbis whether jealousy is a proper word to use mm. about the divine uh, or if jealousy is one of those kind of limit cases. It gestures at something that is inscrutable. Mm. But the only way that we can describe it is this kind of desperate longing for this desperate attachment or this even this desperate longing for a particular relationship. In which case you would also have that anger isn't even the right word it's, to use. To the, to the, we're also talking about English words. And I suspect no. semantic discourses surrounding these words in their original languages That's are right. far richer than that. Sure. Shall we bring in a guest? Our guest is one of the friends of this show. We've had him on a few times. We've had him on very strange topics. And this one I suspect, I hope at least, he's a little bit more at home with. Sam Spall is Senior Lecturer in Philosophy at the University of Sydney. Given the fact we've dealt so much with semantics and the proper use of words here, Sam's meticulousness when it comes to the proper use of words is one of the many things that commends him for this particular discussion. Sam, thanks so much for joining us once again on The Minefield. Thank you so much. Great to be here. So you've heard us struggle with jealousy. (laughs) It's kind of one of those things I would never believe. As many do. I would never. Yes. I would never believe anybody who said they didn't feel jealous. And yet I would also... I couldn't help myself looking down on somebody who ever admitted to jealousy. What is it about jealousy that ties us in knots? Well, there's a lot there, and there are a lot of interesting observations in the preceding discussion. So thank you for this warm-up. I mean, I I guess I don't exactly share your intuition about the looking down on jealousy piece of that. Hmm. I think that... um, I greatly sympathize with people who feel certain kinds of jealousy because it's such a, I think, distinctive, negative, overwhelming, or it can be uh, such an overwhelming negative emotion. I I think I look down on people, that's not even the way I would put it, but I'm quite concerned about jealousy. I'm quite skeptical about the value of jealousy. 
partly because of what kinds of behaviors it can cause if it's not appropriately moderated. And so I suppose I would begin by putting it that way, much less of a looking down, much more of a thinking we should seriously rethink how to modify jealousy when it is happening and um, particularly how to intervene so as to prevent certain kinds of jealous behaviors. I think the starting point for this is that very few people use jealousy as a virtue. Hmm, they don't right. say it. That, mm -hmm. So, Scott, I'm different to you. When someone tells me they're jealous, I don't look down upon them. I actually quite admire them because what they're doing is confessing a shortcoming to you. They're not saying, I'm jealous and isn't that great? They're, they're saying, they're often using it as a way of, I don't know, to some extent, delegitimizing their response to something. They hmm. would say it like, maybe I'm just jealous just jealous, hmm. as in this is not something that deserves to be respected, but this is perhaps where I'm coming from. And so I, th I feel like... But see, that's a much better way of making my same point, which is we don't use jealousy as a virtue. If someone confesses right. it, even the very right. mode of confession is saying there's actually something kind of sort of shameful or at least less than exactly. ideal. Exactly. Indeed, it's often, I think, coupled with an admission of shame. We're often shamed, like ashamed of our experience of jealousy because, for example, we know that it's not warranted or we know that there's something really that there's a deep mismatch between the affect and the sort of modes of representation that are leading to the affect and the thing it should be tracking in the world. I think there's a lot more to say about what causes or explains jealousy. So maybe I could say a word about mm, that, and please. that might help us to get into, I think, the really interesting sort of puzzle that you both were presenting that especially I, I'd really like to say something about what Walid was saying with the question concerning, you know, whether most or many people want their partners to feel jealous, right? But I mean, when you ask the question, like, why does jealousy arise or, you know, when does it arise? There's some familiar answers. They might be too totalizing, but um, you know, in the Zohar, we can read that he who loves without jealousy does not truly love. Okay, so that's like a constitutive claim. You don't love if you don't feel jealous. And I take this interestingly to be referring to romantic love, probably, or that's the going to be the common interpretation of a passage like this, right? La Rochefoucauld, who, you know, I've, I've spoken to you about before, but I'm a big fan. He has a lot of um, interesting aphorisms about jealousy. He says jealousy is always born with love, but does not always die with it. So that's at least like a causal kind of claim about when jealousy occurs. Again, jealousy is uh, maybe contingent, but like very robust, uh, common effect of love. And again, I, I take him to be speaking about romantic love. So, you know, I, I'm not saying that jealousy only occurs in that context. Small children, we might say, often get jealous uh, when their parents' affection is distributed in ways that they don't really like. And like parents might get jealous, friends might get jealous of each other. Uh, I think, though, that the dynamics are quite different in these different kinds of loving relationships. Personally, I'll just report, I very rarely feel jealousy outside of the romantic love context, and I don't think I'm alone in that disposition, right? So there's already, if you think there's something there, there's this question about why this seems so special to that context, right? And that's part of the background of Waleed's question about how we want our partners to be emotionally, whether we want them to experience jealousy. Part of what's interesting about it, and I think very, very puzzling once you start to dig deeper, indeed, even in the, here's one way I could try to maybe provoke you both a bit, like even in the context of a romantic love relationship, there are lots of ways in which that analogs of the kind of jealousy that will lead seem to be valorizing aren't going to be valorized, right? So suppose I were to 
tell my partner or say to my partner, not that I want exclusive sexual commitments, but that I want them to um, refrain from going to the movies with anyone else, right? Now that we've reached a certain level of seriousness in this relationship, we've gotten over that, you know, fun adolescent phase where we're doing all these things willy-nilly with all these other people. It's getting serious. So, like, here's my demand now. No more going to the movies with anyone else because that's just a really important thing to me, you know? And so I want exclusivity in movie going. I mean, most people would react to that, and my partner, I think, would uh, react to that by saying that that's just completely ludicrous as a demand. It's completely ridiculous if I'm jealous about them going to the movies with someone else. And we're not going to set up our relationship in a way that respects that reaction, right? Nonetheless, we do ubiquitously set up our romantic relationships in a way that respects the jealous reaction that Walid was eliciting with his example. So I think there's that's one way to begin to present what I see as a deep puzzle at the core of lots of contemporary discussions of the dynamics of intimate romantic relationships, and particularly discussions by those who tout the values of non-monogamy. Obviously, a lot more to say there, but um, mm. I'm curious if you have reactions. See, this is really strange, I think, and I, and I really appreciate your provocation. I just wonder, though, Sam, I mean, the operative issue in the middle of all of this is the centrality or not of the ego in the sense of jealousy. So when I think of jealousy, I'll confess the thing that first comes to mind isn't Figaro and it's not True Detective, but it's uh, Marcel in Proust's mm -hmm. In Search of Lost Time, who is so preoccupied by the possibility I mean, first of his mother, but then of Albertine's thoughts and eyes wandering elsewhere, that he only finds himself at peace when she's asleep and knows that her senses are effectively shut off. I mean, that is Marcel's ego is at the center and Albertine mm -hmm. is at very best a planet that orbits him and his ego. You could say that then the opposite of that would be the example from Godard's film. And, you know, I, I th actually think that Albert, I'm not trying to be all hipster with this, but, you know, Alberto Moravia's novel Il Desprezzo is just so much better even than Godard's film. But, you know, Paul is a bit of an innocent. You could say that he's oblivious, but he is totally secure in the love of Camille, which means that Camille being with her, even him sort of nudging Camille in the direction of Jeremiah Prokosh. I mean, it really is innocent. It's but she takes that as a lack of care, and also a, a lack of attentiveness. Yeah, I think, and, yes, and a failure—a right. failure to stand up for anything. So that's she right. describes him as not a man. Yes, I mean, it's it's non-jealousy. It's a degree of innocence. But I think you're right that in his character, so self-absorbed he is. But without, it's not exactly egocentric. But well, it is though, because all he cares about is the benefit he can derive from the situation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I, again, I'm just wondering about the litmus test of the ego because there, there is something, I think, natural. There is something human about wanting to occupy a particular place in the eyes of someone who one loves. No one else. Of course. No one else. Uh, this person looks at no one else the way that they look at me. But yes, I don't know where to take it further than that. They, uh, sorry, can I add yeah. something? And Sam, I'm interested in your thoughts on this. Aren't there certain mm -hmm. relationships, though, where that is entirely appropriate and what makes the relationship what it is? For example, family. You want your parents to look at you in a way they look at no one else. Including your brother, right, Walid? Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, although sibling relationships are a little more complicated. But yeah, you, but... Want, you want that... Because they occupy a very particular position where that is what's owed. And, and that's what makes that relationship special. It's what allows that relationship to perform the functions that that relationship ought to perform. If you had parents who genuinely thought, I'm going to take 
a radically objective view of all the kids in the world and you're not very good, but those kids over there are great. So I'm going <laughs> to look at them the way that you think I ought to look at you. Then you actually not get a breakdown of something really fundamental there. Right? Oh, this is Miss Jellybee, Sam, isn't it? This is Miss Jellybee from, uh, from Dickens's Bleak House. So, well, that's true. <laughs> that, that those parents would not be good parents. But I'm not sure how much that's touching the the source of pressure that I'm trying to apply. I mean, I, I guess what I'm saying is that your parents can look at you in the ways that, I mean, not that just that you're owed, but that you want to be looked at and loved by your parents, while they also look at and love their other children in the requisite ways. No, no Let me I'm, try I'm thinking about tag. their non-children. Yeah, their non-children. Of course, if they treated their non-children in more their children ways than they treated their actual children, I think that might be a case for legitimate or warranted or rational jealousy. So I'm, I'm not trying to suggest that there is no instance in which jealousy is appropriate. I'm much more interested in the larger question of when it's appropriate, and I'm taking a particular angle on that question, which you might present as a kind of skepticism about the ubiquitous, if sometimes implicit, appropriateness accorded it, or valorization of jealousy in the context of romantic relationships. So let me let me try a different way of putting this, right? Advocates of ethical non-monogamy often say, it's, it's often part of the core of philosophical accounts of things like polyamory, right? That people should cultivate a certain kind of trait, a virtuous trait. They call it compersion. They think of compersion as a alternative to jealousy. Some of them even think that there are things that we can do to, as it were, convert our jealous reactions into compersive reactions. So let me just say quickly what I take compersion to be. So whereas jealousy is some kind of complex, I think, of negative emotions directed at, in the case of romantic love, right, the threat of arrival or the partner's independent sexuality or something like that, right? And I, and I do think it's a complex of negative emotions and there's some interesting questions here, right? Like, it seems like sometimes it's kind of sadness, sometimes it's kind of fear or anxiety, sometimes it's more anger or even resentment, sometimes it looks more like a disgust reaction to me. Anyway, that's what jealousy is. But compersion is a very different complex of affect taken towards kind of the same object in a way right? Compersion is a happiness or a joy, the advocates of compersion say, in one's partner's romantic or sexual happiness, let's say, with another, okay? And one thing that advocates of compersion tend to say is that this looks like a really loving attitude, right? Like, this looks like a way of it's not like, you know, maybe the example from contempt is a bit noisy here, right? Because it's not like compersion requires pushing your lover into the arms of another, right? It, I think, requires just facilitating to a certain degree and taking joy in your partner's independent sources of happiness, which generally we think is, is just a requirement of love, right? But in this case, it's their independent sources of sexual or romantic happiness, which, again, we often carve out as the sorts of things that, notwithstanding the fact that we're supposed to generally, as lovers, care about our partner's happiness, uh, when it comes to their sexual and romantic happiness, maybe not so much. So maybe that helps a bit to sort mm. of present yeah. part of the core of this perspective. I see, look, I'm not saying you can snap your fingers and become compersive. I'm not saying I myself am particularly compersive. I'm saying that I think the proposal that compersion is a virtuous alternative to jealousy and that our relationships should be more concerned to build up 
and facilitate compersion and to sort of block or at least not sort of institutionalize and valorize jealousy, I think that suggestion is a very powerful one. Scott, you want oh. for a bit of compersion? Oh, man. Okay, so we have a trajectory here, don't we? Or we have a spectrum. You've got compersion on the one hand. This would be a form of, can we call it, Sam, loving detachment? I don't think it's detachment at all. No. I think it's attachment of a paradigmatically loving kind. Just as, so, the, so the advocate of conversion is going to say, just as if I'm a good lover, I'm going to care about and facilitate my partners having intimate friendships with other people, which are good for their well-being, so too I'm going to care about and facilitate their having, if they want, if it's good for their flourishing, intimate sexual romantic relationships with other people. Okay. Wow. So no, I don't think detachment is a fair characterization. Interesting. Okay, good. Yeah, which involves a, a paradigmatic acceptance that sexual encounter and sexual relationship is conceptually indistinguishable yes. from other forms of attachment. Yes. And then on the other hand, we have jealous possessiveness. So let's call it angry possessiveness. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering if in the Aristotelian mode, we were to draw the finest of fine distinctions in the middle. What would that distinction look like? What is the litmus test? Because I, I have a sense surrounding sort of uh, self versus unselfing that given the fact that I don't think you're the biggest fan of Iris Murdoch, I don't think you're going to quite accept Sam. Um, how... Oh, I like Iris Murdoch quite a bit. Okay, so how would you... <laughs> but anyway, that's not... How, how would you draw or define the finest of fine distinctions between, say, yeah, yes, in, in the middle between, say, harmful forms of attachment or possessiveness? Um, it's tough, right? Like, consider the analogies I've been trying to draw. What, what's the virtuous mean between my um, being possessive about my partner's friendships with other people and my facilitating them. I think there is a, a virtuous mean. I think it's just much closer to the side of facilitation, right? Like at, at a certain point, if my partner is spending like all of her time with other friends and none with me, well, that it's it's probably time for me to stop being such a doormat and get a bit more possessive if I care about our relationship involving but, but shared why, activity. Sam? I mean, why, why would you draw that distinction? I would draw that distinction be, because in order to have a relationship with someone that is worth valuing, you need to spend some time with them. But if my relationship is built on the notion of facilitating their joy, happiness, fulfillment, whatever, then surely I should accept that irrespective of the size of it. I mean, you, you might be able to say as a... Yeah, as a I, I, I kind of agree in mm. a way. If spending any time with me at all was truly bad for my partner, <laughs> then what I should do is end the relationship. <laughs> I think that's a good... That's no, actually pretty good advice. Yeah, yeah. But that's, but that's slightly different to what you just said, which is there would be a point at which I shouldn't be a doormat. And it seems to me that the way this is framed, there's no such thing as being a doormat. You should be dormatifying yourself at every available opportunity because... No, I think you're giving in to some very widely shared but ultimately questionable assumptions about what it would mean to not be in a sexually exclusive relationship that was nonetheless a loving, committed, serious, genuinely intimate relationship. I don't think that would mean being a doormat at all, nor do I think it would mean nor do proponents of ethical non-monogamy suggest that it's a, I mean, relationship anarchy, no rules at all here is one sort of flavor of relationship proposal, but by no means the dominant one. So, right, there there can be lots of um, guidelines, and rules, and there's going to be constant open discussion in relationships that are functioning well like this. It's just that I think many of us, including me myself and, you know, earlier stages of my life, are very, very quick to assume that in virtue of not having exceptionless sexual exclusivity or monogamy, right, a relationship is necessarily less serious or committed 
or loving. And no, that's very yeah. strange. And I think there, there are a lot of other bad consequences of sort of cementing these bits of ideology. So just to mention one obvious one, it kind of came up, I think. So I really appreciated how I think both of you, but maybe Scott more explicitly in the intro were noting some of the gendered dimensions of jealousy and particularly sexual jealousy in particular. Mm. It's like part of how we construct masculinity, especially the contempt example seems like a really, really clear example of that. Right. And I think these modes of imagining and conceiving of and enforcing masculinity are quite damaging. I think they're connected to broader patterns of, if you like, male sexual entitlement that many philosophers are very interested in analyzing nowadays, and that I think it's not hard to see how they have some quite damaging mm. effects. You know, one of the things we haven't touched on, we should devote an entire show to it. I'm not sure if you two agree with this, but can't you feel just how wrong the language of ought and owed is when it comes mm -hmm. to the nature of affection or attention. It seems to me yeah. that jealousy is one of those things that springs from the sense of oughtness. This is what I am owed. This is what is entitled to me. Whereas as soon as you give up on the notion of the oughtness of something or the oughtness, and it becomes something somewhat more gracious, this is what is given rather than what is owed then you can feel that maybe the language of jealousy begins to kind of eke away. Every yeah. So yeah. I just I think I, that's really nicely put. I just don't I think, agree with it. Wow. So, so, let, let me just float, or at least I think it's interesting to consider whether it might be that jealousy, specifically of the sort I've been talking most about, like sexual romantic jealousy, is in fact, or at least to some degree, maybe to a large degree, actually produced by certain relationship structures and ideologies and ways of conceiving of the kinds of relationships in terms of possession. You could think of like the history of legal marriage as mm -hmm. one obvious example of these sorts of practices and how kind of <laughs> consequential and robust they are, right? Rather than, as I think many people think of it, jealousy being a kind of natural biologically necessitated response, which vindicates, which justifies these kinds of relationship constructions, right? That latter thought is, I think, how most of us tend to approach this at the beginning, but I am increasingly interested in, in the former idea that actually jealousy might be a product of ideology and social structures as much as it is this sort of cross. And, and I think there's a lot of interesting research uh, for example, cross-cultural research and research about jealousy in people of different genders and different relationship configurations that might begin to bear some of this mm. Interesting. Well, we can't do it now, Sam, I'm afraid, because you, uh, as you <laughs> That's all right. we are out of time. Thanks so much for dropping by again. Thank you very much. Samuel Spall, Senior Lecturer in Philosophy at the University of Sydney, our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield, which is now at an end. I'll see you again. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.